today we are actually at issue 10 of 10 in 1 Corinthians. And so this is the final issue that the author, Paul, the apostle, addresses to the church in Corinth. If you've been here through this, you know that this is a dialogue that's gone back and forth between the Corinthian church and Paul, who is an apostle writing a letter to them, but also he was the initial founder of the church. And so he began it, he handed off to some elders, he left, he moved on to Ephesus, where he is writing this letter from, and he's had more correspondence with them. They've written him, he's written them. They've had some visitors from Corinth come see him in Ephesus. And after this letter, he will go back and visit them and return to Ephesus. It's this ongoing relationship. But 1 Corinthians, the 16 chapters of what we would call the book or the letter, covers 10 issues. And then next week, we'll close up the book, but this is issue 10 of 10, and I'll explain the issue in just a minute. It will come out, I think, in verse 12. And so for now, let me give you a main idea for today. I'm going to talk about doctrines of the gospel. So Paul teaches through several key doctrines of the gospel. Nothing is more important for us to understand and apply to our lives than the gospel. So we are going to see different facets doctrinally, about the gospel, all right? And we're going we're gonna to lean into some of those. In fact, I didn't have really many slides, two or three, and I went back this morning and I just named each doctrine and gave you a simple, hopefully, sentence to give that to you. So if you're a note taker, your app, the church app, has those notes in it already. And so you can go there, you can get them if you miss something, uh, but they're not very long today, so it should be easy. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, says this. Oh, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the chairs in front of you, and I can even help. If you're borrowing a Bible, it is on page 961, so that should make it easy. We would encourage you to follow along. You've got a, if you don't have a notebook, there's a note sheet in the, on the chair in front of you. There's a, a children's handout for the kids, so they can follow along, take notes, see some key words, something you can talk about at home, all right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let this verse here, let this set us up for the whole day, right? For the, for the entire message. Here's how Paul speaks about the gospel. Paul never presents the gospel as this, this thing in the past that reconnected you with the God who created you. That is never how Paul speaks about the gospel. In fact, here, Paul does very well to speak about a past tense gospel, a present tense gospel, and a future tense gospel that relates to us, the follower of Jesus. Okay? So, I want to I read this to you. It says, the, the gospel which you received, so that's past tense, so when you come to faith, we would say, or when you are, are uh, in relationship with Jesus, in that, in that moment, it is the gospel, the work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf, it is that that connects a sinful humanity to a holy God, right? It's the gospel. It's not just Jesus, the person of God, right? That it's not just Jesus, the work that Jesus has accomplished for us. Then it says the gospel in which you stand, and so the gospel is the very power that we stand in every day. When we hear something in church that we say, okay, 
This is what God's word teaches, and I'm somewhere over here, and I need to be where God teaches, whether that be sins of commission, we're doing something wrong, or sins of omission, where we're not doing something we should be doing. Whenever that correction is necessary, it is not in our ability to fix it, but rather it is the gospel at work within us, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, that transforms us. So it's the gospel in which we stand every day. Then the third one is the gospel by which you are being saved, right? And he goes on to not only an ongoing, but a perfect tense, right? So you have past, this is what began the relationship, present, this is the power that keeps you within the gospel, and an ongoing and future tense by which you are being saved, right? We know that when we first meet Jesus, that we are not everything we should be in Christ. Now, we know that Jesus has done everything we need to be all that we are called to be in Christ. So Jesus has achieved that, right? We are learning how to walk in it and surrender to it. In fact, we often make the mistake of trying harder in it rather than surrendering in the gospel and allowing God to transform us more and more, right? But then we know for sure that the hope of Christ is that he has accomplished our salvation, That we will, if we are in Christ, we will one day stand before God blameless because of Christ. Not because of anything of which we have done, but because of Christ. Now, he uses this past, present, future, and ongoing tense. He uses this, and then he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here's the if of the gospel. The gospel is secure. If you're in Christ, you're secure. The question is, are you in Christ? Am I in Christ? Right? And, and here's what he is saying, is if you continue in, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed in something or not wholeheartedly, unless your belief was not true and rooted in Christ. See, Jesus tells a story about four soils when he tells this parable. He talks about the gospel going out as seed. He said, in the seed sometimes falls along hard ground, and the birds come and take it away, and then sometimes it falls around in, into rocky ground, and it can't take root, and the sun makes it wither away, and then sometimes it's, it, it takes some root, but there are weeds in there, and they, they choke it out, and it doesn't survive, but there are some seeds. There are some seed that falls on good ground and produces, right? Sometimes that vain belief is, oh, this sounds good emotionally, or logically here, but I'm not willing to give this up over these. I'm not really ready to, to go all the way. Well, and that's what he's saying is belief in vain. But if you're in Christ, then the gospel is planted in good soil, and you will persevere to the end. That does not mean you won't have some days that don't look good, right? That you won't have some steps backward, but that you will persevere to the end. Verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And we're going to pause there for a second. Of first importance. Paul is going to go on and for the next 50 whatever verses is going to teach us facets of the gospel to overcome a problem that they're having. But he's saying that I taught you of first importance, right? That the most important doctrinal things that we need, that we must understand is the gospel, right? Because it's the, it's the very thing that we 
received and believed in. It's the very power in which we stand. It's the very thing that is saving and will stand us before God. It's, it's the only critical, true, mandatory thing that we must get a hold of. We can wrestle with things about, well, how does the world play out? Or we can, we can kind of figure out some other things later, but the gospel is the most important doctrine. Without the gospel, we have nothing. Without the gospel, you can understand the Trinity. You can understand the hypostatic union of Christ. You may have a timeline and charts and graphs for end times, but without the gospel, you have nothing. And that's Paul's point today. But then he says it in a very unique way. He says, I delivered to you, and that, that paradidomize, the Greek word, the way he delivered, it's like I traditioned to you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul catechized the church, and so that's a big word that we do, our catechism question, right? Catechize is a verb, in other words, how you do it, right? And so when you catechize your children, you are teaching them through a process of question and answer memorization. That's catechizing, right? And so we do a catechism question every week with the hopes that all of us, but especially parents, will be training their children one question and answer per week. Paul did that with adults. We do that with adults. We, we teach in this way. And so Paul traditioned or catechized them of first importance, the gospel. And so what we're going to see in, in these verses right here is a bit of, sometimes Paul gives hints of how his catechism may have sounded. And we'll see that. So let's start at verse 3 again. For I delivered to you... <clears throat> As of first importance, what I also received, because he was taught also, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to, and it's going to talk about Cephas and the 12. <clears throat> it's going to talk about many in just a minute. We'll pause right there. Here's the points of Paul's catechesis that he is reminding, not teaching for the first time, but reminding the church in Corinth. Christ died according to the scripture. Christ was buried. Christ was raised from the dead according to the scripture. Christ appeared to the disciples and others, right? I want you to hear this, and I don't know this is how it went, but I want you to hear this in, in catechism form. I want you to hear what it might have sounded like. It might be imagined if I asked a question and someone gives the answer, well, why did Christ die to forgive our sins? Why was Christ buried to prove that he was dead? Why was Christ raised from the dead to give us new life? Why did Christ reveal himself to others to prove that he was alive? Why did all this need to happen in this way so that scripture would be fulfilled and show God's sovereignty? You see what he's doing, and he, and he uses this language over and over. We saw it earlier with one body, one spirit, one that, you know, he's just kind of one baptism, right? He, he uses this language, and he uses it in other places. And so we have hints or clues, little Easter eggs, if you will, buried in there about Paul's catechism or Paul's catechesis or Paul's tra uh, traditioning, if you will, the church to others. So if you can see how Paul taught that, if you can see kind of a window in, then let me encourage you, that's what we do every Wednesday night, right? That that is our emphasis on, on catechism, really. We call it our Wednesday night service. It could equally be called a catechism service, and 
Catechism predates Catholicism, in case that makes you twitch inside for some of you that have that background. Catechesis is a way of learning that's predated Catholicism, Christianity, was done by Judaism hundreds of years before Christ. It's, it's an ongoing way of teaching. Again, I always use the example, that's how I learned multiplication tables. Two times two is four, two times three is six, two times four, right? You know, you just memorize what is two times two, your answer. You've memorized four, so you don't have to do your fingers, right? Verse five. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, also, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Hundreds of living witnesses at the time of Paul's writing this letter. This was not something that was derived later. This letter was written early, in the early years of the first century church. At the time when most of the witnesses for the resurrected Jesus were still alive and could validate it. There's some church history and some non-Christian history that writes about the resurrection of Jesus. Josephus, a Jew, a historian who writes history for Jews, who never became a follower of Jesus as far as we know, writes about Jesus' resurrection. Right? There's, there's, there's people that have, will give us proof that we can read about, not just from those who were perpetuating the gospel, but from those who were outside of it. But as Paul writes, he says, listen, there's hundreds of witnesses still alive today that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, this is important because this is going to be critical to Paul's message. Verse 10, it says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Notice what we said earlier. Like it's not about our hard work, it's not about our effort, but it's about the grace of God within us. Paul's like, I rose to the challenge though. God changed me, God used me, but I put in the time. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, meaning some other person preached the gospel to them, he says, so we preach and so you believed. We can get caught up in who the teacher is or how the delivery sounds. But I would suggest as long as the gospel content is there, it's a message. But there is a message worthy of being heard and listened to and, and allowed to kind of creep into the hard places in our lives and through our heart. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, you can see Paul's emphasis, Christ risen from the dead. So now if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say there, are no, there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So here is the issue. Here's issue number 10 of Paul's 10 issues with the church in Corinth. And what it is, is that they don't believe in a resurrection. And, and here's why. They live in what we would call Greco-Roman culture, right? Between Greece and Rome's culture, that Greco-Roman culture that they live in. And it was dominated by philosophers. Yes, there was a, a pantheon of idols that could be worshipped and, and all kinds of worship that took place of all kinds of idols. But it was also saturated with philosophy. And most philosophers of the Greco-Roman period that had influence at this point said that the physical is bad, right? This is what is 
this is what is sinful, or they, they may not use sinful, but this is what is corrupted. But the spiritual, the spiritual is good. So the physical bad, the spiritual good, right? And that, that for Christianity to proclaim a physical resurrection is kind of tying us to this thing that is broken, okay? Rather than just a spiritual thing where we become spirits and not physical. That was Greco-Roman culture. And so the Corinthians have taken that, or they've, they were raised believing that, and then in the gospel, when they become followers of Jesus, they don't let the gospel reshape that for them. They're still stuck here. You with me? So they don't believe in a physical resurrection, but Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And because they don't believe in that, they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because they don't believe in the resurrection for us. And so what they see is an eternal life that is simply spiritual or only spiritual and not physical. Now, that part has crept its way into the church today, right? I remember, and I use this example, and I think I'm, it's starting to be too dated to use, but I remember growing up watching Bugs Bunny cartoons, right? Any Bugs Bunny? Oh, thank God. All right, so, all right. For those of you that missed out, man, I'm just saying you missed out, all right? So what happens when Bugs Bunny die? What would happen? Little angel would come up, right? Really bad theology, right? So angels are created beings. Humans are created beings. When you die, you don't become an angel, right? Those don't work. But there's this idea of the wings and the harp and the halo and this kind of cloudly existence that's spiritual, right? That's not what eternity looks like. Now, that may be closer to what happens when the believer dies, and it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but that is not what eternity looks like, and we spend a lot of time on this in the book of Revelation, talking about this world being remade sinlessly, perfectly, eternally, that we will be here forever with a new body, with a new, in a new world, if you will. So the Corinthian church is denying that, but it's a massive piece of the gospel. And because they don't believe that the body or a physical body is any good, they don't believe, some don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's a problem. Whatever heaven looks like is really not our concern today. The resurrection of Jesus, though, is critical. With no resurrection, there's no gospel. So that is Paul's point. So let's restart at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say, now notice it's some, not all, right? How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead, meaning of us, right? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul addresses that issue, building it off the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is in vain, and we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, if he, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. There's a confusing sentence. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's the easier way of saying it. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all a people to be pitied. So most importantly, Paul says no resurrection, no gospel. No resurrection, we're still in our sins. No resurrection, we shouldn't be here. My game started 22 minutes ago. 
no resurrection, I should be home watching the Cowboys, right? I don't want to hear it. They should win today, all right? But we're, if there's no resurrection, we're wasting our time. Because with no resurrection, there's no gospel. And I'll give you one good reason. One good reason is because Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to raise from the dead in three days. So if he couldn't fulfill that, he's not God. If he couldn't do that, and there's then also 2,000 years of Scripture pointing to a resurrection. And so if we can't complete this, if God can't do his job with the Old Testament and get it fulfilled, and Jesus can't fulfill his own words, we should be at home watching football. You with me? No resurrection, no gospel. No resurrection, we're still in our sins. No resurrection, and we are a people to be pitied. You see, the gospel is very simple in its nature. It's that God created us, humanity, male and female, we're sinless, that all was right. And then sin entered into human history, right? Humanity was tempted, humanity failed. And because Adam failed, we all fail, right? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But because Adam failed, we inherit sinful, we'll call it sinful spiritual DNA. We're born under the curse of sin. The result of sin is death. And so because we were created but chose not to be obedient to God, we die because sin results in death. And we'll actually see that that's a good thing. But see, God didn't want to leave that math, that equation alone. Because now a sinful humanity has no way to please a holy God. And so instead, the holy God who created everything, condescended to become human, Jesus became flesh. So Jesus came and entered into human history, fully human yet fully God, a mystery but true, the scripture over and over teaches us about, and so that Jesus could endure life as we endure it, but without failure, and so that Jesus could then take the wrath of God off of us, onto him, Jesus went to the cross, and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And when I say the wrath of God, I don't mean the crucifixion, which was brutal. Literally, the word excruciating comes from excrucis, meaning from the cross. That it was so violent and painful and brutal a death that there's a word that comes out of that. Pain like from the cross. But I mean, when God turned his back and separated, however, from Jesus, that the distance and the separation that you and I deserve, that, that Jesus did not deserve, that Jesus bore that for us. And then to prove he was dead, he was laid in a grave for three days. But because he is God, he rose from the grave on the third day. That Jesus is alive today. This is not the kind of resurrection where Jesus goes and prays for Lazarus. And Lazarus gets up, or little Tabitha who gets up, because they went on to die later. But Jesus lives eternally. That Jesus is alive, and that he showed himself physically, bodily, alive for weeks until he ascended back to heaven. And he did so with over 500 witnesses, not just the apostles. Not just a small group of guys that are like, here's a great conspiracy, let's take over the world, we'll tell them Jesus rose from the dead. Hundreds of people believed in Jesus because they saw him. Jews, Romans, others. 
And so because of that, that's our gospel, that we were created one way, but the fall has caused us to be another way. So Jesus comes, and we've been talking about redemption. In fact, we've talked about all these things on Wednesday nights very recently, specifically about a redeemer and why, how Jesus is human, how Jesus is divine, and, and, and all that took place for us. And so creation, fall, redemption, and then God now, through the gospel, is in this process of restoring the world that we live in, one believer at a time, maybe, one church at a time, until eternity comes and Jesus makes it all right. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration is the language we use, right? That this is how God created it. We messed it up. God reconciles that and will fix it. So the gospel is fairly simple. Those four things will get you through any gospel conversation for the most part. But Paul wants to take it much further. And so I want to show this to you in Acts 13. This is the early church now preaching the gospel. And it says this, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. This is Paul preaching, I believe. Did not see corruption. So God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the point in Paul's gospel. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. And so here's what we get. The gospel since the first century, since its inception in the first churches, since its first leaders who knew Jesus face to face and got their gospel from Jesus, the gospel is that Jesus is alive. And that without a resurrection, a bodily, physical resurrection, without that, there is no forgiveness of sin, there's no gospel, and we should be at home in our pajamas. That's the framework. Acts 13 gives us that early version of it. So now here, Paul is going to teach several doctrines. We will not cover them all in our time, but that they're important to understand for the gospel. So verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is that term, like we talk about tithing, first tenth is what tithing means, right? That God gives us the breath in our lungs or the job that we have or the income that we have and calls us to give the first tenth, the first fruits of what we make, right? So gospel doctrine number one, we'll put this on the screen, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That doctrine tells us three things. Jesus truly lived, Jesus truly died, and Jesus tr truly rose again to live eternally. The bodily resurrection of Christ is critical. That's where Paul begins. Without this, he says, there is no gospel. The application to us is that God has kept his promises. Jesus has kept his promises. And therefore, we can trust in him. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's a term called federalism, but before I put the slide up, I want to tell you a, uh, kind of a story. It's, it's taken from a hip-hop artist named Shailen, and he says that one player commits a foul, the whole team gets penalized. Right? We understand that one person can do something, we can all be accountable for it. And by the same thing, there's, in football, there's only one guy who actually gets the ball to break the plane. It gets it into the end zone, or if it's a free throw, it's one guy. But everybody on the team gets the points, right? So we understand there's something bigger than us. And so in Adam, I'll die, but in Christ, I'll live. And so the gospel doctrine number two is federalism. We inherit death by our father, Adam. 
but all who are in Christ inherit life, physical and spiritual. That's called federalism, right? We have a federal government. What is said here is lived out here. Adam became our federal head when he sinned, and then in Adam all die, because all sin. But in Christ, all who are in Christ now shall live, okay? It's called federalism. Not important that you know the nerd term, but thought I'd give it to you. Verse 23, and, and the application to federalism is that we who were once dead in sin, if we're in Christ, are now alive and, and get to inherit all the benefit and blessing of being in Christ. That's the application to us. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Talking about Jesus overcoming Satan's sin and death. So I want to start with a verse here. Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking, and he's speaking actually to Satan as Satan has tempted and misled humanity into sin. And God says this, I will put enmity or strife or struggle between you and the woman, between your offspring, evil, and her offspring. And he, notice that it goes from plural to singular, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first gospel proclamation, the first promise made in Scripture is made by God over humanity, actually also said to Satan, right? And the promise is this, that one day there will be a he, Jesus, who will come and he will crush your head. Although you're going to think you won because you're going to get a momentary bruising. The cross was that momentary, oh, I think I got him. And then he crushed Satan's sin and death with the resurrection. See, this ties into the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus just died, I can just die. Now, I'm not a perfect, sinless savior, but anybody can die. It's the resurrection that is key that gives Jesus victory over Satan, sin, and death. So gospel doctrine number three is Christus Victor. That's Latin for Christ is victorious, or the victorious Christ. Christ defeated Satan by resurrecting from the dead, and we will finally conquer all evil, and will, excuse me, conquer, finally conquer all evil upon his return. The application to us is that Christ has overcome Satan's sin and death. So that if we're in Christ, our struggles are temporary, and they are overcomable now. If you're in Christ, you, you can overcome struggles starting today. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is, once you overcome that struggle, you're going to find more. But you'll be drawing ever nearer to Christ along the way. And it's because we're imperfect, it's because we're flawed, that there will always be something to better ourselves in, but we know that. If you play an instrument, or play a sport, or you're a parent, or you're, you work in your job, whatever you do, you can always grow in it. You can always be better. Those who are best in the world train all the time because they want to be better. So we're used to that. In this case, it's overcoming sin. We can overcome because of Christ, because he has had victory, not because I can have victory. I can only have victory because he has had victory. And that begins today, and it'll be perfected in eternity. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, meaning under Jesus' feet. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who, that he is ex- accepted who put all things under subjection. God put everything under subjection to Jesus except God himself. That's what it's saying. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So God has placed everything under, that's what subjection is, under the authority of Christ. Everything, obviously, except for himself. And then when Jesus is done and calls it a wrap and returns, then he gives everything back to God, perfected, because the gospel will restore and recreate everything. So the gospel doctrine is the lordship, number four, is the lordship of Christ. Jesus reigns as Lord and King today by his Holy Spirit until he returns. Can you put that one up, please? Jesus is Lord and King today. And that he reigns by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to say why I said that way. See, the Holy Spirit applies to us. So God ordained the gospel to be. We saw that in Genesis 3.15. God ordained redemption to be. Jesus came and accomplished redemption. The Holy Spirit applies redemption to us and to the broken world we live in. God ordains, Jesus accomplishes, the Holy Spirit applies Under the lordship of Jesus today, he is king and lord. The application to us is that we are submitted to the lordship of Jesus and empowered by him today. Right? That we, when we use the language of lord and savior, we're pretty good at the savior part. That's the part that gets us forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Lordship is where we say, okay, you're actually in charge of my life. And there's really no being a follower of Jesus without submitting to the lordship of Jesus. You don't get the Savior apart from the Lord. Verse 29. Paul continues. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So he's saying, if there's no resurrection. That's his premise all day, right? If this, then this. So he's asking, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, is a quote from local Ephesian worship and philosophy which is also Greco-Roman, is known in Corinth. Corinth and uh, Ephesus are not very far apart uh, by modern-day standards. Clearly, if you have to walk or ride a horse or get a boat, then obviously it's much harder to get there. But it's not very far apart in modern standards, right? And so he's quoting philosophy that is familiar to them. And here's what he's saying. If the dead isn't raised, why do we get baptized into the death when we go into the water and resurrection of Jesus? Now, it reads a little awkwardly, and people have built some very odd and false doctrines off of this about being baptized in place of your dead, deceased relative, right? For sure it's not saying that, right? What he's tying it into is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's That's the thrust of the entire passage today. Suffering, if there's no resurrection, resurrected Jesus, well then suffering then is, is forever, right? If, if there's no living Jesus, then sacrifice, why sacrifice in this life? 
Why do that if there's nothing to look forward to? Right? That's what he's asking. Why would, we, why would we do what we do? Notice Paul's use of beasts. Just like John writes about beasts, he writes in both his letters, his epistles, and in Revelation. Right? Those who oppose the church, those who oppose Christ, he, he calls them beasts. Right? And he said, why would we fight that? Remember, Paul's time in Ephesus comes to a close when the people that create Artemis idols or Diana idols, little statues that people worship, when they start to go out of business because Christianity is taking over in Ephesus and they are losing money because nobody wants to buy their little Diana Artemis dolls anymore, a riot breaks out. And this riot consumes Ephesus and that's when Paul is actually arrested, though he had nothing to do with starting it. Those are the kind of beasts Paul is fighting on the ground. Those are the kind of forces opposing the gospel that Paul is engaged in. I would say we are engaged in as well. We're, we're engaged with things that are opposite to Christianity, that are trying to indoctrinate us as a culture and our kids that go the opposite of the gospel. If there's no resurrection from the dead, if this is it, then again, we should be taking the morning off. Because everything hinges both on a resurrected Jesus and an eternity that is worth sacrificing and suffering for today. So our common struggle here is that we also like to live in this world as if this world actually matters. As if this world isn't going to be like a little dot on a timeline and eternity is forever. But if Jesus is resurrected, then this world is dying and we should live for eternity just as Jesus lived for the kingdom eternally. I'll say it again, if, this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then this world is dying. And living for this world will never satisfy you. It will never get you to eternity. Verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Right here is really kind of funny. Paul is quoting a Greek playwright from a, a Greek comedy that uses this line, and evidently, in that play, it was a punchline, bad company ruins good morals. And so Paul quotes this Greek comedy to make his point. He says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame, that some have no knowledge of God. He's saying you should be, you should be proclaiming the gospel in your community, and you're not. You've missed the mission of the church. Church, if we're not on mission to take the gospel beyond ourselves, we're missing our purpose, both collectively and individually. Paul gives three commands here. Do not be deceived. These are imperatives. These are not suggestions, right? These are commands that Paul is giving to the church and they apply to us. Do not be deceived. We are to know the gospel and what is true or false about the gospel. Again, you don't have to parse out all of Sinaitic law or covenant theology or really wrap your head around a triune God. You don't, maybe, and, and you should persist in understanding fundamentals of Christianity even more. But the gospel's a must. How can you say I, I have, the gospel's transformed me if you're unclear on what the gospel is? Command number two, wake up from your stupor. He says we're to sober up from the allure of this life and of sin 
and to see the world truly. Thirdly, he says, do not go on sinning. He says, stop living in ways that oppose the one true and living God. Know the gospel. Wake up from the allure of this life and stop living in ways that are antithetical to to following Jesus. Verse 35. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So Paul says somebody's going to ask this question. Like, what do you mean by a resurrected body? Like, they're trying to wrap their heads around it. So Paul's going to give some examples. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. He's going to use body in this case. He's talking about human body. All throughout 1 Corinthians, mostly talks about the church. This is the human body. But a bare kernel. So the, what you sow or a seed is not what the body is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Here's the example. If you plant an apple seed, the body is what the seed looks like. And then when it dies to itself, when it, when it does what it is to do in the ground, it becomes an apple tree over time, right? It takes on a new body. What do you mean a resurrected body? I understand human body because I have one. I can see them. What do you mean? First example, a seed becomes an apple tree. Seed, being the human body as it is today, the apple tree, what it's meant to be in eternity. Verse 39 and 40 says, For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. Let's do 41 too. For there is the one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for the star differs from star in glory. He's saying there's different earthly human bodies, there's different earthly animal bodies, fish bodies, bird bodies. He goes on, he says there's different kinds of bodies. He says look up into the body of the sky, if you will. He says there's different stars and different planets, different whatever. Like You can see distinctions in each thing. So he's, his example is we see all kinds of variety already. He says why is it so hard to understand that there's a new variety, if you will, coming? Verse 42, he says, so it is, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown imperishable, that's who we are now, if we're in Christ. What is raised is imperishable, that's eternal. Verse 43, what is sown in dishonor, that's where we're born. It is raised in glory, that starts now and lives forever. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. Paul takes aim at that separation between the physical and the spiritual. And his point is that God is going to unite them together through the gospel. So gospel doctrine number five will put up glorification. We will be physically raised to life in an eternal body that is sinless, that is free of pain and sickness, and that will live eternally without decay. Take that in for a minute. The choices that we make today in this body to live for Christ or not, Determine this, how we will live forever. See, the gospel accomplished by Christ will stand us in front of our Father in heaven, righteous and sinless if we're in Christ, in a glorified body that is eternal, that is not broken because of sin. The back pain that kept me kicking last night and kept me awake and having a hard time to fall asleep, gone. Right? The, the, the things that plague us, 
right? The, the pain that my wife endures every day, all day, gone. Right? All of it in a body that will never decay. As we were intended to be in a world without sin eternally because of Christ. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, talking about Adam. The second man is from heaven, talking about Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So the gospel doctrine is the incarnation. We'll put this slide up. Jesus is God who became fully human to overcome the sins of humanity. Like federalism, we talked about earlier, Christ is the second Adam who overcomes what was lost. In order for Christ to do so, he had to become incarnate. In other words, become in flesh. Jesus had to become human to fulfill what the first Adam, the first federal head, our first father failed at. I love the story of, okay, let me rephrase that. I love the second story. Let me tell you the first story first. In the first story, Adam in the garden, in perfection, in a place without sin, who is tempted, fails in a world that was as it should be. Not the world we live in, but as it was made to be. But the second Adam, Jesus, comes and then goes out into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's had nothing to eat, nothing to drink. I assume he didn't sleep well. If that's me, I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm tired. Hungry makes me angry, so I just put those two together, right? I'm alone, not in my A game, and that's where Jesus has victory over Satan. With everything stacked against him, Jesus overcomes Satan, and he does so with Scripture. In fact, he quotes Deuteronomy multiple times, a book many of you probably never read, and it's not easy to read. So the incarnation, Jesus becomes like us. We were talking on Wednesday night, and I'm, I'm going to give credit. See, the first time, there's a rule, the first time you quote somebody, you've got to give credit. So I'm going to give credit to Chris Jackson. It was his idea, right? Now, next time, I'm going to say, you know, I've heard it said, and then three or four times in, I've always said, and I'm just going to tell you it, right? <clears throat> Chris gave the example, and I'm just going to put it in my words, but if Lisa were in an emergency right now, I would go to her immediately. I would not send someone else, right? I'm not going to send a proxy. I'm not going to send somebody who doesn't feel the urgency and the love and the, and the things that I feel for my wife, right? Chris's example was his daughter, Kylea. If she's in trouble, he is going to go personally, not going to send someone. See, God didn't send someone. God became our Savior personally. Jesus himself came. Jesus, who was there creating all that is. Jesus, who was there the whole time, becomes flesh, comes to us to save us himself. His love for us. The application is that Jesus traveled the distance of holiness to sin, of God to human. He traveled all the distance, humbling himself to rescue us in person. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Gospel doctrine number seven is sanctification. Sanctification comes from all that word, sancte, which means holy. 
the process of becoming holy, but a better way to understand it is the process of becoming more like Jesus. So we will become like Christ in his holiness and perfection for eternity because he makes us entirely new. It starts today, perfected eternally. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ and is the truth of each believer in Christ that we should be becoming more and more like Jesus. We are to overcome sin. Here's the application to us. Overcome sin in this life by the power of the gospel. Not by our own efforts, but by surrender to the gospel, by the transformation of the spirit, applying Christ's work to us. But even in our struggle, we know that we will eventually overcome because Christ overcame. Because of that, we know we will become like Christ. In the first or second, second century, Athanasius said, he became like us so we could become like him. That's the incarnation. We sing a song here called Jesus Messiah that says, he became sin who knew no sin so we could become the righteousness or his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Right? He became sin who knew no sin. He took that on his body so we might become his righteousness. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I'm going to text this to Alex and Renee. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. It's parenting verse 101. Just throwing it out there. All right. We shall not all sleep. He says we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So gospel doctrine number eight is the final return of Christ. Christ will return physically once and for all, calling human history to a close. When he says it's a wrap, it's over. When he says it's done, you're either in or you're out. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ. And when he comes, he changes everything. And we inherit eternity. We inherit it bodily. We inherit it here in a redeemed world as the world should be. We don't even have a clue of what the world should be. It's in our hubris or pride or arrogance that we try and tell everyone what the world should be like. Right? You get a lot of that from people that are younger than you get older and older and older, and sometimes you figure out, okay, I probably don't know what I'm doing either, right? Hopefully we all grow into that. I think you need to get older and get set in your ways like me, and you're just like, I just want to do it my way, right? So we don't even know what the world should look like. And when I had my back surgery in 2002, I'd been in pain for so long that just, it was just a part of life. And I remember coming out of surgery, and the first thing I said to my wife was, I'm out of pain. I had been in pain for a long time, lived with it, and I didn't actually know how much pain. Right? A lot of you had that kind of experience. When you remove that pain, especially if you kind of remove it, I went to sleep in pain, woke up, no more pain. And you're like, oh, I didn't realize. The world we were made to be in, we don't even know. Everything is so flawed in us. That even our sense of justice, apart from Scripture, is flawed. That's how you get two very loud groups of people in our country saying two very opposite things, believing they're good for us. 
Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and pretend they actually believe what they're saying. They're saying very opposite things. And, and there are real believers saying opposite things. We, we have no idea. Verse 53, for the perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. The very fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that we put up earlier. The very deceit, the defeat of Satan, sin, and death is consummated completely at the final return of Jesus. I'm going to put this on the screen too. Inauguration versus consummation of the gospel. What Christ has accomplished completely and totally will one day be ours. When Jesus preached his first message where he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It is at hand, it is near, it is here, it is him. When he preached that first gospel, he proclaimed the kingdom and began establishing the kingdom. He inaugurated his kingship that had to go through the cross and the resurrection to ascend to be king. But he began his campaign for president, if you will, his, his becoming king had to start here and it ended in the resurrection as he ascended back to heaven to be king today. He inaugurated the kingdom there by the power and work of the gospel. And he will see it to its completion, its consummation, when the kingdom is finally realized here with us. That's the gospel. Those are doctrinally little bits and pieces of the gospel. There are many, but those are the fundamentals that Paul covers. I would say one more important one is, is that penal substitution that Jesus substitutes himself to take the penalty of the wrath of God. We talked about it earlier. Don't miss that because it wasn't on the screen. Here's a note for you. I'm going to put this up. Reverend John Newton, who used to be John Newton, the slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace, in a message he preached, he said this, I am not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish to be, and I'm not what I hope to be, but I am not what I once was, a child of, forgive my typo, a child of sin and slave of the devil. And I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That man uses the word slave in a very different way as he was a slave trader. When he identifies himself as once having been a slave to Satan and now being transformed in Christ, he is speaking about the ongoing ever-working gospel within us. We're going to close with verse 58. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abound, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So here's how he is going to hand us this gospel that he has just unpacked. We did maybe half of the things he actually covered. He gives us three commands to persevere in the gospel. Be steadfast. Be resolute. Be unwavering in the gospel. Be strong in the gospel. He says, be immovable, be fixed, secure, be rooted in the gospel. And he says, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Focus on gospel work. This world is dying. Gospel work is eternal. Be always about the gospel. As always, when we talk about our takeaways, we, we ask what applications 
might we make for ourselves? And so I would give you the following suggestions or categories. Myself, I want to wake up from the stupor of this life sometimes. The allure of this world. Not just sin, just the, the allure, the attraction of living in the today. In the, in the, in the, let me say it a different way. In the world that is dying. I can live in the today and be with Jesus. I want to lose the allure of this world. For those of you that are more mature in your faith, who have been down this, this road for a long time, we need you to pass on a whole and complete and robust gospel to the next generation. Your job is not done just because you're a grandparent or retired. Your job is not done. In fact, your job gets to begin so you can pass on the gospel to the next generation. We need you. For those of you that are new to faith, learn the entire gospel. There is much more and how it applies to your life. For those of you here that are not followers of Jesus yet, I would say the gospel is simple in its essence, but it is unending in its application. But it reminds us that this world is being overcome, that this broken world that we live in, that there are answers for why the world is broken, and there are solutions to how we can become something new. That that is the gospel, that Jesus accomplished that for us, and the Spirit applies that to us in Christ. Kids and parents, parents, do you teach the gospel to your kids in its richness and in its power? Take a few minutes, small groups, because we don't have that much time. Turn to one another, and what is your takeaway from the message today?